Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Jacobin Show. Jen is out this episode, but we are joined by David Griscom. And tonight we're going to be talking about socialism and music. We're really, really glad to have David on the show tonight. He is a musician himself, and he's the host of Left Reckoning and a dear friend of the Jacobin Show. Hi, David. Hey, it's really fun to be here. I always like hanging out on the Jacobin streams. Where's your banjo? Where's your guitar? Are you ready? No, they're right in front of me right now. Gonna be. I could bring them out in LA. <laughs> Do a um, and despite, you know, the impulse to, we're not just going to um, promote our own bands or music. We're going to dig into some subjects around the history of socialism in music, mm -hmm. the current state of unionism in music. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, did you watch the Grammys last week, a little over last week? No, I could not uh, get myself to do it other than, watching, you know, Cardi B's performance obviously was a much a must watch, but no, I didn't catch it live. What I like about the Grammys is that they always have this, they always prompt the same kind of conversations around representation and women's sexual expression. Yeah. And it's like an endless loop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the Groundhog Day of the Grammys. The other the thing is, course, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's not just the Grammys. Um, they're nested in a, a bigger s s set of everyone talking about those issues. So what did you think of Cardi B's performance? I mean, I thought it's killer. I'm sorry. I'm a huge Cardi B stan. Um, I yeah. hope that's, a, a, you know, not too normy of me, but like, I think she's incredible. And obviously I'm a big uh, fan of uh, the stallion as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cardi's a, a Bernie bro. So that helps. Um yeah, I, I think it's interesting how um, people are grappling with that platform as a way to kind of protest it. The weekend uh, didn't submit anything for review because he mm -hmm. didn't feel that people were being fairly represented. But there's so much more going on in the music industry and the conditions of it, which we'll dig into later. You did say you watched the Country Music Awards. Well, uh, I... <laughs> That's something that's worth mentioning because I think most of the award shows, you know, for the most part are, you know, they're not very, very exciting things to watch. But the country music awards are exceptional um, in their in their just refusal to deal with anything that's happening um, in the world. Right. And uh, the, the most recent CMAs, they actually failed to honor or mention some very important musicians in country music who had passed away. Uh, one, John Prine who they ignored mm -hmm. because of his politics. I mean, John Prime was a radical. If people are interested, I do a lot on Ben Burgess's show, uh, Give Them an Argument, uh, a segment called uh, Outlaws and Revolutionaries. We talk about the, the histories of these folks. But he was like a radical. They didn't talk about him, nor did they talk about Billy Joe Shaver. And the reason they didn't talk about Billy Joe Shaver is because he died of COVID and talking about his death would be political, right? Um, and I don't know if Kale has this up, but I think the best reaction was Sturgill Simpson's reaction to the uh, CMAs. That where he said, uh, two seconds, that's all it would have took. Don't get it twisted. I wouldn't be caught dead at this tacky-ass glitter and Botox cake and cock pony show, even if my chair had a morphine drip. I just wanted to see if they would say his name, but nope, no time for Buddha. And he's talking there about his good friend, John Prine. So anyways, if you think the Grammys are bad, I'm here to tell you that the, <laughs> the Country Music Awards and that whole industry is way worse. <laughs> it's sad, too, because there's such an incredible radical legacy with country. And mm. you're going to get into that later. 
Um, before we get to your segment, which is great, and before we bring on our guest tonight, Jason Miles, himself a musician, also the host of um, This Is Revolution, I wanted to talk about labor, alienation, and exploitation. <laughs> you know, I had an idea, David, a long time ago. I don't have Twitter, which I, I say often on the show, but I wanted to make a Twitter account called Teaching Marks to Kanye that was just using <laughs> Kanye's own lyrics to be like, you're really kind of getting at something about the labor theory of value here. <laughs> I love it. You should do that. No one has to know. <laughs> they'll, they'll know now. Actually, I have to say the Jacobin show probably out of all the left YouTube shows is probably the least on Twitter. Yeah. None of y'all are on that. Well, Paul is. Oh, Paul but, is, yeah. Yeah, he takes all the heat for us. <laughs> That's good. I, I'm not doing it as a political act or, or um, an act of self-preservation. I fundamentally don't understand how to do it. Yeah. I know I seem like I'm I'm young enough to like adjust, but I just can't. I don't mm. get it. <laughs> On that note, um, I want to get to my segment about the exploitation and alienation that people face within the music industry. Uh, the music industry is an odd combination of glamour, power, celebrity, and also exploitation through predatory contracts, coercion, and ownership. Like many types of media, while we celebrate the artists, the connection they give us to our emotions and imaginations, the conditions that produce their art are obscured by powerful and complex systems. There is an intimacy that a person feels with an artist they love, something that personalizes them. This can disguise some of the conditions of this industry, but artists have started to speak out. I'd like to take a moment to look at some high-profile examples, starting with Lauren Hill, who issued this statement on why she withdrew from the industry. Quote, Having put the lives and needs of other people before my own for multiple years and having made hundreds of millions of dollars for certain institutions under complex and sometimes severe circumstances, I began to require growth and more equitable treatment, but was met with resistance. I entered into my craft full of optimism, which I still possess, but immediately saw the suppressive force with which the system attempts to maintain its control over a given paradigm. I've seen people promote addiction, use sabotage, blacklisting, media bullying, and other coercion techniques they could to prevent artists from knowing their true value or exercising their full power. These devices of control, no matter how well-intentioned or not, can have devastating outcomes on the lives of people, especially creative types who must grow and exist within a certain environment and according to a certain pace in order to live and create optimally. The statement is long, and many people focus on the more sensational aspects of this, particularly because it was released after Hill was charged with failing to file taxes. But far less people looked at the kinds of conditions it described, conditions that have time and again been at the center of musicians' issues with the industry, from session musicians to huge stars like Prince, Taylor Swift, and Lady Gaga. Now, full disclosure, I used to sing for Lauryn Hill, and I noticed that a lot of the criticism that she got was around measures she took to protect her independence and well-being as an artist. There are more people speaking up about this, and they're attracting less scrutiny than she did at the time. But she was one of the kind of early starters criticizing 
aspects of the industry, and she was roundly attacked for it. Luckily, that has changed in some ways, but the terrain on which the fight takes place has not. As strange as it may seem, the music industry, whether it knows it or not, has been one of the most vocal about workers controlling the means of production and the fruits of their labor. Part of this is tied to the commercialization of authenticity in the industry, the singer-songwriter who records and distributes their own songs, the mogul who makes it big and starts her own label to help other artists maintain their integrity, or more recently, the artist-owned streaming service. But beyond brand management and authenticity, there's a real critique of the lack of control musicians have over their own content and the conditions of their careers and working life. What they are alluding to are the classic Marxist concepts of exploitation and alienation, and technological change and financialization have exacerbated these tendencies in the industry. Let's listen to Taylor Swift. Lately, there's been a new shift that has affected me personally, and that I feel is a potentially harmful force in our industry. And as your resident loud person, I feel the need to bring it up. And that is the unregulated world of private equity coming in and buying up our music as if it is real estate, as, it, as if it's an app or a shoe line. This just happened to me without my approval, consultation, or consent. After I was denied the chance to purchase my music outright, my entire catalog, was sold to Scooter Braun's Ithaca Holdings in a deal that I'm told was funded by the Soros family, 23 Capital, and the Carlyle Group. Yet, to this day, none of these investors have ever bothered to contact me or my team directly to perform their due diligence on their investment, on their investment in me, to ask how I might feel about the new owner of my art the music I wrote, the videos I created, photos of me, my handwriting, my album designs. And of course, Scooter never contacted me or my team to discuss it prior to the sale or even when it was announced. Now, the point here isn't to feel bad for Taylor Swift or any of these other extremely successful musicians. The point is that even at this level of success, you cannot effectively compete with or mitigate the interests of capital. You can be a global superstar and you're still fighting for ownership over not just your products, but yourself and your identity. It's easier for huge stars to speak up about this because of their profiles, but it doesn't mean it's easier for them to fight it. Most recently, R&B legend Anita Baker has asked fans not to purchase or stream her music as she fights for ownership of her masters. Other artists are fighting individually for more revenue on streaming services or, like Jay-Z, trying to start their own with title. But... What has been missing from the discussion is unionization. That is until recently. Atlanta don't sound like they'd be down for this rapper strike thing I keep talking about. Rapper strike? Who? Well, I ain't heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I must have missed that. You take why he don't sound like he fucking with the rapper strike? I don't know. You, you, you don't think we need a union? Mm. A union. Man, you, going, you should be one of the. You should be like our Derek Fisher or somebody. Come on, Chris Paul. Yeah, yeah I could be that. 
They gonna pay me to be the head of that? <laughs> I just like that 2 Chains rotates out of frame for that. But here Joe Budden is talking to 2 Chains about a rapper's strike over issues around racism in the U.S., similar to the one staged by the NBA. But other artists have talked about organizing, including Lady Gaga, who claimed in 2016, quote, we don't have a union as artists. We're just fighting for ourselves. And you can see this in the tactics that they undertake. But the thing is, they do have a union. Musicians are represented by both SAG-AFTRA and AFM. Their membership is extremely limited, in part because the model in the music industry is so complex, with so many people working as freelance workers and many musicians occupying the role of both boss and employee. The dynamic of the industry means people's roles can shift rapidly from one context to another. The other membership issue is that as the industry has changed, the unions have failed to connect to the issues faced by those working within it, not for lack of trying. Now it seems more viable for high profile people, however, to start their own agencies, their own record labels, and make their own venues than to join in organizing the industry. But as Adam Krauthammer, president of AFM's New York chapter, told Rolling Stone, quote, income inequality and other issues in the workplace are never going to be addressed by individual musicians alone. Labor is the way forward. I would encourage anyone who's interested to check out that article and this article on Jacobin called Musicians Can and Should Organize to Improve Their Working Conditions. It gets much more in-depth into the conditions of the industry and the history of organizing within it than I can during this segment, but I would strongly encourage anybody who's interested in organizing in the music industry to check those out. One of the most profound and banal aspects of music is that people work together to create a collective expressive product, something shareable, relatable, and communal. Cooperation and emotion are at the heart of this art form. There is a reason why workers' choruses were celebrated as the artistic manifestation of the socialist impulse. The collective acting is an individual, greater than the sum of its part. parts the might of the, in the union of people. It is a living dictum from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. We focus a lot on the possibility of democratic socialism to alleviate and eliminate the brutality and deprivation so many people experience, but it also has the ability to increase connection, joy, and leisure. The music industry has a lesson about the failure of individual responses to collective problems. Often celebrities try to solve it by creating their own companies, using their individual might to push for changes at the margins, or to push for changes within their own contracts. And we should pay attention to these failures because so often the solution that is offered by capitalism mimics the strategies undertaken by the most famous musicians. Don't like the game? Change the players. Jay-Z's title or Taylor Swift's Spotify deal won't change the conditions for the vast majority of musicians whose work is precarious, pay unpredictable, and contracts inscrutable and predatory. Most can't withdraw like Lauren Hill understandably did, but even those on top are stronger when they work with those on the bottom. Imagine for a second if Anita Baker didn't just have the fans on her side, 
but every session musician, songwriter, and producer, and seasoned union lawyers to help her fight for her masters. I want to end with this clip from WGA member Howard Gould in the lead up to the writer's strike. The WGA was facing a similar situation as musicians. Technological changes and, and how people consume their products changed the revenue model, and the writers were left out of this. Here's Gould explaining the stakes of the strike and the power of the union. Just a personal experience last night, I went on NBC.com, clicked on The Office. You can watch entire episodes of 10, 15 series. Okay, you click on the office, what do you get? You get a commercial for Fidelity Investments. Then you watch the cold open, and then you get a commercial for Target. They are monetizing these episodes already, okay? Carlton Cuse was telling me before, uh, Lost does not run a second network rerun. So, so the, the writers on that show are not getting the typical nice check that you usually get when you're working on a successful series. That goes right to the internet. They are making money on it. We're not making money on those. We must realize that that's the kind of issue we can't let stand. As the internet becomes the way, it's the way my kids watch TV. They hear about a show, they look for it on the internet. Soon when computers and your TV are connected, that's how we're all gonna watch, okay? Those residuals are going to go from what they are towards zero if we don't make a stand now. And I wanna go a step beyond that, which is this is such a big issue that if they see us roll over on this without making a stand, three years from now, they're going to be back for something else. Okay? And, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something. And I'm, I, you know, these guys will tell you, I might have been the most moderate one up here when we started. But I sat there in the room the first day, and they read us those 32 pages of rollbacks, and what they wanted us to hear was that if you don't give us what you want on the important thing, we're going to come after you for all those other things. But what I heard was, if we give them that thing, they'll still come after us for those other things. And in three years, it'll be we want to revamp the whole residual system. And in another three years, it'll be, you know what, we don't really want to fund the health fund the way we've been. And then it'll be pension, and then it'll be credit determination. And there just is that time when everybody has to see this is one where we've just got to stand our ground. So I hope Taylor Swift listens to Howard Gould. We can stand our ground, but we can cover a lot more of it collectively. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, it's it's so true to see like what is coming for folks in the music industry is coming for creatives across the board, right? Mm -hmm. And and how critical because this is something that we're we're talking about not just with regard regards to like music and art, but also with medicine, intellectual property. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very interesting to see who that system benefits uh, today. Right. And it's primarily been those at the very, very, very top of the system. While so many of the people who do the actual work of producing all the things that, you know, we need and make life worth living. Um, yeah. Get screwed it's, over even at the top echelons. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same in other industries like coders, for instance. Mm. They're producing intellectual property. These things are worth, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. And they don't receive residuals that I know of on the code that they're creating. The, the model that the Writers Guild has put in place 
um, I think is is a good roadmap or a blueprint for other industries where it could be applied. And the music industry is interesting. Cause like you said, you've got these huge profile stars who are just being completely, you know, run down by a system that's set up to protect capital. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, uh, on that note, yeah. let's get to some of the, the more authentic musicians. Well, <laughs> I like that music has like, I mean, I know there, I could go into the postmodern theories on authenticity and identity and so on and so forth. But, you know, that's what makes a lot of music political. That's mm. what allows some people to inject their politics into their music. And people really like to be able to connect with people on that level. I think your segment gets to a lot of that. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I'm going to be talking about, I, I decided to highlight some big names, people that everybody knows to make the same point that um, I'm going to be talking about um, three members of the Highwaymen, which is, you know, one of the greatest uh, country and just in general super groups of all time, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, and Chris Christopherson. Um, no disrespect uh, to Waylon Jennings, uh, my personal favorite, but these just fit really well. Um, but, you know, I could also be talking about um, other artists like Blaze Foley or Towns Van Zandt, right? You know, you might know who Towns Van Zandt is, but, you know, he spent a life, even though he wrote music that was covered by everybody, he was one of the most influential musicians probably of all time in the United States. Um, you know, somebody who really struggled financially because he was constantly getting screwed over by, uh, you know, this, this system, this capital system, which rewarded extremely predatory and also, you know, highly um, monopolized uh, record and, and music industry, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I want to focus on, on these folks too, and also give a little bit of, of a defense for country music or an argument for country music, because country music is extremely personal to me. Um, it, it's, it's been the back, you know, the, the music in the backdrop of my life. Um, it makes me think of home and family and all these things. Um, and I get very angry when I see the state of, of country music today uh, be, because what we saw happening in like the golden era of country music, right, where you have these outlaw stars like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson fighting against the record industry um, and really pushing a different kind of music. Um, what we're living through today is a period of time where those like record executives and, uh, you know, capital in general has won out. And, you know, the people who get the most money in country music aren't making the best music. And they're also, you know, I mean, think about what happened uh, after 9-11 all of those terrible country songs, you know, supporting the Iraq war when that wasn't the history of, of country music. And I think it's really important for fans of it to try to reclaim it today. But let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get into Johnny Cash for a second. We all know Johnny Cash as a rebel, right? The man in black, you know, somebody who seemed to have a lot of fun, drugs, alcohol, all that kind of stuff. But let's not forget where he came from. If we have this first clip up here, Kale, um, Johnny Cash came from Dice, Arkansas. There was nobody rich when it came to dice. Everybody was in the same boat. They didn't have no money, no nothing. They came here, they were poor as you could be. They were just trying to, to make a living to feed their family, and this was a new beginning. Before 1934, Dice Colony was uh, non-existent. It was a cypress swamp, and it flooded frequently. And as part of the Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal administration, the federal government purchased the land from adjacent landowners, drained parts of it, and built um, a new community, a new town that offered relief and economic opportunity for farm families across Arkansas that were affected by the Depression. And 
you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing story right here. Johnny Cash comes from that town. Johnny Cash was a product of the New Deal, was a product of social programs. And despite how many conservatives try to own Johnny Cash and, and country music, Johnny Cash would describe um, his early life as this. I grew up under socialism, kind of. Maybe a better word would be communalism, right? Johnny Cash had this radical upbringing that came out of the labor militancy that was able to push through so many of the best programs of the New Deal. And let's not forget, you know, we all know the story of, of Johnny Cash. He spent a long time fighting to get into the, you know, the music industry. Um, remember, it, it took a lot for him to really get a serious listen um, from the folks who basically owned access to the radio waves. Um, you know, but of course, we all know Johnny Cash is a household name. He became an extremely influential musician who changed the face of country music and music in this country in general, right? Um, but he spent his entire time having to fight against a music industry that tended to be extremely conservative, not just politically, but also musically, uh, an industry that was very resistant to change. And I just want you to remember this, that these things are about power at the end of the day. Um, from the previous segment, we were talking about how artists are trying to fight to have control over their own music. Um, it's been the case from the beginning. And the reason for that is that capitalism allows a few people to exert incredible amounts of power over all of us, even if you're a big star. Music is no different. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Johnny Cash's life um, and this kind of radical tradition. You know, folks uh, might know this, but, you know, Johnny Cash actually played for Richard Nixon. Um, and it's a very interesting story because... Johnny Cash is invited to go play for Richard Nixon you know, in the middle of this brutal war. And Richard Nixon requests that he plays Okie from Muskogee. For folks who aren't familiar with that, it's a satirical song uh, written by Merle Haggard, um, uh, basically about beating up hippies who are anti-war, right? Funny story, by the way, uh, when uh, Johnny Cash played his famous concert in San Quentin Prison, Merle Haggard was in that audience. Anyway... Johnny Cash declines uh, Richard Nixon's request and says, I've got a few of my own to play for you. The first song he played was the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes was one of the American soldiers and, and a Native American who ended up holding the flag at the Battle of Iwo Jima, that famous photograph. Um, he wrote this. This song is about how he came back from the war and was mistreated by the government and the system. Um, some of the lyrics go down the ditches a thousand years. The waters grew Irish people's crops till the white man stole their water rights and the sparkling water stopped. Then Johnny Cash went on to play What is Truth, which was an anti-Vietnam song and called out the, you know, was basically calling on the ruling class of the society to have some humanity and to listen seriously to the questions that were being brought up by the young folks in the society. And the last song he played was Man in Black. And for folks who aren't familiar with that song, that's Johnny Cash des describing why he wears his signature black. And it's not just a stylistic choice. He wears it for the poor and beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. He wears it for the prisoner who has paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the time. Johnny Cash was through and through a radical. Um, and if you think that art can change anyone, that is quite an opportunity to play for somebody as insane and monstrous as Richard Nixon and to play those kind of songs. And one last thing about Johnny Cash and his music, I think, and I propose here, a song that needs to become a mainstay in uh, left organizing spaces is Oni, uh, which is a ballad that Johnny Cash wrote about a worker who is waiting for the whistle at the end of his last day at the job. 
after spending his entire life working for somebody else. Um, because once that whistle blows, he's going to punch his boss in the face. Um, he dedicates the song to the working man. Um, for every man that puts in eight or 10 hard hours a day of work, toil, and sweat, always got somebody looking down his neck, trying to get more out of him than he really ought to have put in. I bring this up to just compare it to what you're going to hear on, you know, popular country radio stations today. Nothing as radical as this, but that's the tradition of country music. Um, and before we move on uh, from Johnny Cash, I also just want to throw this one out here because it's a great clip um, from Johnny Cash, who actually was in uh, the miniseries North and South. And when he knew that this was going on, he specifically demanded to play the radical abolitionist John Brown. These are members of my staff. You talk as though we're at war, sir. We most certainly are at war. My men and I came all the way from Kansas to make sure justice prevails and to ensure the freedom of Negroes in this state. I love that clip, one, because it's great to see Johnny Cash as John Brown, uh, but also because Patrick Swayze has a terrible Southern accent and Johnny Cash just cannot um, you know, hold back his own uh, twang. Um, but let's talk about Willie Nelson for a second, too, because this is another person who we all know, um, you know, because of his you know, love of weed. Uh, Willie Nelson is obviously an incredible human being, an incredible musician. But this is another person, too, who had to spend the early parts of his career fighting against a record industry, which refused to let him play music his own way. And it's just something that you have to think about. One, you know, these are labor issues. But man. It's such a horrible crime to think about how many other people were not allowed uh, to basically present their music to the world because a bunch of wealthy people um, who control basically access uh, to, you know, to music production prevent uh, visionaries and artists from being able to, to make music. You know, he had to leave Nashville, come to Austin, where there was a much more you know, laid back hippie scene to be able to become the Willie Nelson that we all know and love today. Um, but I, I wanted to focus on one aspect of uh, Willie Nelson's advocacy that a lot of folks miss out on. Uh, Willie Nelson has been a longtime supporter of Leonard Peltier. I believe we have a couple photographs of, of Leonard, too. Um, for folks who aren't familiar, Leonard Peltier was a member of the American Indian Movement who was framed for murder of two FBI agents and is still in prison today, an American political prisoner. Willie Nelson constantly would do benefit concerts in support of Leonard Peltier and for Leonard Peltier's freedom. Um, we have this one right here, uh, Cowboys for Indians and Justice for Leonard Peltier. Willie, Willie Nelson would do these concerts so frequently that the police to this day will show up at his concerts in protest. And we have this last uh, LA Times uh, article on this as well. Um, benefit concert for, for convicted killer haunts Willie Nelson, right? Um, that's from 1988. But basically, you know, from Boston, um, you know, all across the country, police unions will show up at Willie Nelson's con concerts to demand uh, that he apologize for supporting Leonard Peltier. He still stands with Leonard, right? And this is some of, one of those things that gets completely overshadowed um, on purpose by a music industry that wants to hide how radical and progressive these folks were. Um, just while we're on Leonard Peltier and music, uh, Stephen Van Zandt, uh, who you might know from either Bruce Springsteen or from The Sopranos, uh, also is an outspoken uh, supporter of, of Leonard Peltier too. And I highly suggest you check out some of the uh, songs that he's written about Leonard Peltier. They are very, very goofy. 
Um, but last um, but not least, I wanted to talk about Chris Christopherson, um, who is also a member of the Highwayman. And he was somebody uh, who was an incredible poet and writer and thinker, and he's a musician that you really should dive into if you're not familiar. Um, but he he's somebody who, too, had to fight to get into the record industry. And they would constantly, even when he became a big star, would tell him that he could not sing the songs about the things that he wanted to sing about, or, or they would try to censor his music, right? And that's because he was an outspoken critic of U.S. imperialism, not just the war in Vietnam, but he was a supporter of the Sandinistas, um, and he was obviously an outspoken critic of the war in Iraq. Um, and he had to spend his career, even though he was one of the most famous artists out there, constantly having contracts pulled out from underneath his feet because record companies didn't want somebody who was talking about truth and justice. And we have this last little clip here about him talking about censorship in music. The reason that... Uh the music didn't have an effect on the war in Iraq was not that we stopped making the music, was that they stopped playing it. I think it's, I think the people behind the censorship, I know ultimately it may be people in the government, but I, I think directly it's people who are affected economically by it, who feel that their product won't sell. I know that was the the uh, uh, first excuse that was given to me, uh, they said I, I had become unmarketable because I was writing songs like They Killed Him, which was about Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And, and, uh, and they said that I simply was unmarketable in what they perceived as my market. And that's exactly it. I mean, Chris really lays out the dynamic there is people who have economic interests in making sure that certain messages are not allowed uh, to reach the general public. Um, and this, again, is somebody who is one of the most legendary and celebrated country music artists ever who is having his own work be censored. I, I think, you know, it's something that's not unique to country music, but it's something that I think we should be more and more up in arms about because, you know, people oftentimes say it's like, oh, I, I miss the golden era of country music when people wrote, you know, great songs and stood up for social causes. That still exists today. The problem is that the record companies have been able to win that fight, that they are able to prevent anybody from getting big and famous um, who is not going to toe the line. There are exceptions, and that's a good thing. But what we have, we're seeing in country music right now is not that the music itself or the style of music or the idea or the history of it um, you know, is, is conservative or like necessarily like needs to make the kind of terrible music that you're hearing today. Um, it's actually happened because there is a deliberate choice by those at the top to make sure that this music is bleached of any kind of radical message, pro-worker message um, that is its roots and its history. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And the way that he talks about the kind of overlapping interests, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's economic. Mm -hmm. We've seen this more too with people talking about Nina Simone's life, everything that she went through, which is just absolutely heartbreaking and brutal um, for her political messages. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I, I like your point that it's not that the music is changing. It's that who you're hearing is changing. <laughs> I think that's Remember exactly that, that will put a boot in your ass song. <laughs> Toby <laughs> Keith is a real jackass. There's a funny <laughs> story about Toby Keith and, and Chris Christopherson to tell maybe later. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should do that. We should bring in Jason for that. Um, mm. We are really, really happy to welcome Jason Miles onto the show. He's the host of This Is Revolution and the singer and guitar player for Bitter Lake. He has a longer CV that I hope he gets into about his musical development. We're going to keep this like more conversational because mm -hmm. um, awesome. there are so many things to touch on. I mean, this is a huge topic. David and I have brought up some some things. I want to talk about the way technology is changing. Musicians, and that's very very near and dear to my heart because I, yeah. uh, I I didn't get a chance to really explain it to to Kale. I've talked to him a little bit about it, but over the last ten years or so, before the world shut down, um, I pretty much spent my life uh, traveling around the world, uh, playing probably about a hundred hundred fifty shows a year. And also working, uh, I, I used to work for contracted through an extremely large tech company. So I worked mm -hmm. all the very large music festivals. So, uh, David, I'm sure you know a uh, stagecoach. Mm -hmm. uh, stagecoach, Coachella, um, EDC. So I, music is literally my life. And then I, li I finally li moved out of there uh, earlier this year. Uh, I lived inside of a music rehearsal uh, recording studio in West Oakland, where if you're familiar with the movie, sorry to bother you, sorry to bother you. A lot of that was mm -hmm. filmed there. Everybody's video was filmed there. It's not glamorous. It wasn't like a hippie artist commune. It was, <laughs> it was kind of a hood ass. It's never game. as glamorous as you think. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and not every place is a drug den. But <laughs> it was, it was this one. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's totally fine. It so you moved. <laughs> I finally, 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 it, it was, it was a long time coming, but uh, you know, it enabled me to meet a lot of people. I got to meet all my heroes, like through that place. That's actually how I know Boots Riley, mm -hmm. and, and so many other people. I'm I've, this shirt is not ironic. I'm a fan of the music, and all those guys practice there as well as. Oh, cool! Uh, you know, we had the platinum records on the wall of of like In Vogue and the Tonys, Tony, 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 and then I got to like you know meet them and know them. So that was pretty cool. Digital Underground. Hmm. E40, Too Short, um, name, like I said, name a genre of music and somebody came and through they, there. So it, it was from big acts, like when The Cure came there to practice. And there's another funny damn. story there about The Cure and Smash Mouth, if you guys care to hear it, uh, to everybody that wants to be a superstar coming through. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we deal with it all. So when I hear certain people talk about streaming and the money they get from streaming it always rubs me a certain way because for us very small artists we never really made money from the radio anyway mm -hmm. and a big reason why you're hearing so many extremely large artists talk about streaming is because they're not getting those radio checks like they used to mm -hmm. if you would have saw the size of some of those radio checks there's a reason why tours were so different in the 80s and the 90s yeah. and the 2000s, you start to see that cutoff because record sales uh, really drop off. Um, and again, being in that environment, you're literally with these cats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
that are having these conversations and, and you're you're hearing about the changes that they have to make from their live setup to doing things like uh, meet and greets. Like mm -hmm. these artists are pretty much forced into doing meet and greets because everything is different, even down to the money they would get from endorsing instruments. Yeah. Mm. You know. Yeah, the model changed really drastically in a pretty, you know, um, condensed period of time. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's interesting because in some ways it's been good. I was reading that in 2017, the share of streaming revenue for indie artists was 47%. And it was much, much lower before that. So they're getting an increased share. A lot mm -hmm. of things have been developed to try to, you know, give people control over their platform. I know Bandcamp allows um, musicians to sell their own music. I'm, I know who developed yeah. that. Yeah. He was my, my sister's friend. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because you can have these almost vulgar Marxist conversations about the means of production, mm -hmm. access to the means of production, mm -hmm. control of the means of production. While at the same time, these technological changes are actually replacing a lot of people. They're, you may not need a, a type of backup singer if you can auto-tune or yes. you may not need um, production models are changing. So the tension is always part of the conversation, I think, with musicians. Yeah, yes and no. I'll say this. I'll say this. There is an odd shift to people wanting to be DJs and that goes into and this is just my opinion I don't there's no solid data I have on this that goes into the amount of money you can make by yourself yeah right mm -hmm. and for some people so for example let's say I hate to use real people's names let's say I'm Trent you Redmond. can change their oh <laughs> okay right. I don't know him I don't know him he might be a nice guy I don't know uh seems like a nice guy uh, let's say I'm Trent Reznor. I can go DJ at a club. And just for the fact that I'm there pressing shuffle on my iTunes, you got to pay me six figures. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't have the production costs I had before. I have to pay a crew and all that other stuff. Doing that all day long. So that's why you see a lot of like bigger but Paris Hilton as a DJ. Sure. You'd be surprised how much yeah. money these people make. Working yeah. festivals like EDC, which is the largest in northern uh, North America, I think it's about 175,000 people a day. Yeah. For three days in the mm -hmm. desert. And uh, I wish I could have shared stuff with you so you could see the the, the pictures because some you know it takes me like an hour and a half to get to my office when I'm there. <laughs> uh, just to walk through the it's a rave it's a huge rave <laughs> and you know when you go to like coachella and all these other music festivals i don't care what the genre of music is stages are spaced apart because you don't mm -hmm. want bleed i don't care it's all night it makes ridiculous amounts of money ridiculous that's my job to do those reports so yeah. i see why there's a shift in that 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 for for a lot of people to want to be uh, DJs because it is a little bit easier and and like you said the technology has changed, but then when you see rappers, especially older ones, there tends to be a shift for them to actually want live musicians because they mm -hmm. need to change the show. They you know those old gray mares ain't what they used to be. They can't you know hop around on stage like they used to, right? So a live band takes up a lot of that space. It's a better show. But all that stuff costs money. And 
And this is like one of the things that's interesting, um, you know, and I have m much less experience with like actually like making music, you know, any kind of professional setting uh, like that y'all do. Um, but I think one of the tensions when it comes to streaming and when it comes to these shifts is fundamentally questions about power and our relationships to technology. Like, what do I mean by that? Like, it's actually not like, like the fact that I can like on my phone pick up and listen to almost like any great musicians like whole catalog <laughs> is not necessarily a bad thing the problem is is that they're not getting the money right and the, like yeah. and then we get into this absurd situation where we're trying to talk about a problem of like power relations and capitalism right but we instead start focusing our energy and frustration on technology right well I'll, just, tell you, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you guys a true story about paul mccartney and i think i might have told this to you mr griscom so there was a festival a few years back called Desert Trip. You young people called it Old Cella. <laughs> and it happens where Coachella is. And if you remember it, it was like the Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, The Who, Damn. Roger Waters, Bob Dylan. First time all those guys ever shared a stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So Coachella is about 100, 125,000 people a day. This was in the 60s, like 60-some thousand people a day. That's a lot of people to see mm -hmm. six people, six bands, right? Two bands a night. Where Coachella is music from 11 a.m. to whenever it's over. This is music from like six to nine. Mm. And then it's done, right? <laughs> so, so to have those people there, con yeah. like, shit all day, because you're locked in. It's a little city. Mm -hmm. but you're pretty much locked in. And it's a consumer paradise. I'm trying to set the set so you really understand mm -hmm. where, where all this stuff exists. So my job is to make sure the flow of capital doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. So I got to go check all the points of sale systems. I think we had about, about 900, about 900 points for one wow. music festival, right? Coachella has about 1400. Watch me get in all this trouble. Now that I get a message from Square. <laughs> yeah. They're going to so, be like, why are you, I, I, you, you sue me. You're just practicing. I have no money. So, <laughs> so, I'm with this young kid that's assisting me in setting all this stuff up. We're just trying to make sure it's connected to the Wi-Fi. There's definitely several towers. They set up towers, so each section has its own freaking tower, right? Mm -hmm. We can't stop the flow of money. So as we're going around, Paul McCartney sound checking because we're, we're at the bar by the main stage. And the kid I'm with goes, is that Paul McCartney? I was like, I don't fucking know. Cause I'm like an old man. I don't care what the music I hear in the background. I'm just like, ah, get out of here. And it's hot. It's the desert. It's hot. And so the kid goes, I think that's Paul McCartney. My dad likes Paul McCartney. I'm going to go record it. I was like, I don't care. So the kid goes, mm -hmm. walks off and he's recording Paul McCartney. All of a sudden security. Uh, we have all these like dune buggies or whatever. Yeah. I was going to say with their helicopters coming yeah. in. Like, <laughs> the helicopters yeah. are only for the rich people, right? They, they actually fly in. That's, that's not a joke. You hear helicopters like Thursday and Friday. That is real. But the, they come in with the dune buggies, right? Zoom. Put your camera down. And one of the higher ups from the company I work at you know, takes the kid aside, puts him in the, in the cart, takes him to me. He's got to erase his phone. They're like, mm -hmm. Paul McCartney doesn't allow anyone to, record his sound check it is three thousand dollars a song if you want to watch his sound check insane yeah now, that's i don't level. know if paul mccartney knows that somebody went out there to do that we didn't hear paul mccartney from the microphone say hey get that kid mm -hmm. he didn't motion mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure he has a team of people that are 
you know, keeping their eye on things. No musician also, the other thing that's interesting about music is like, we have this perception that um, it's kind of this authentic, intimate representation of an individual or a set of individuals, but it's always a team of people. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about having these conversations is that even when artists themselves are talking about these issues, they have to start talking about and acknowledging their team. So like Beyonce is, Beyonce is like at least 50 people, you know? You couldn't be Beyonce and not have that whole team of people. That doesn't detract from what she does, but mm -hmm. the way that she's related to is as an individual and the tension between being like the product yourself and then producing a product with a team of people and then negotiating around those terms and then operating in a power structure where let's face it, like capital has a tremendous amount of control. They can control your music for 35 years mm -hmm. um, or longer. Yeah. So it, it creates all of these like really, really kind of interesting points of entry for some broader philosophical questions around socialism. Before we get to more of those, I wanted to roll a clip that I pulled mm -hmm. that I actually found out about from, um, Micah Utrecht's article on Jacobin called um, The Welfare State They Were In. Hmm. And um, it's about the band Bell and Sebastian. And he talks about uh, a Pitchfork documentary called If You're Feeling Sinister, where the members of the band are talking about a Scottish welfare program that they participated called Beatbox that was specifically for unemployed musicians. So, Kale, hmm. could you roll that clip for me? I didn't actually move to Glasgow till I was in my 20s. I was unemployed just doing music for a long time and couldn't really afford it. Uh, and it was when I started doing a course called Beatbox for unemployed musicians in Glasgow. You got an extra £10 a week and that was enough to, to be able to rent a place. And that was where I met Stuart. He was on the course at the same time. Beatbox was like a course that they put people on when they were either unemployed or in my case, too sick to work. And um, they kind of gathered up all the, the waifs and strays from the town and, and they, they said, okay, you're on a music course now. But really we would just turn up and there wasn't really a course provided for us. We were just sitting around sort of like a refugee camp for unemployed musicians. At first I thought it was terrible. I thought the type of music that they were playing was terrible. But after a while I realised this was the only uh, game in town that I should use it. Maybe once a month your band were allowed to go in and record in the studio. And you could use other musicians for on the, on the course. And Stuart wasn't a bass player, but he said he would learn, you know, he said my songs were so simple that he would play bass. His style was quite well developed. I think I told him on that first day that it sounded a bit like blur, which I think probably offended him. <laughs> so <laughs> what I love about that is, you know, it's a different type of social welfare program than we're used to seeing, especially in America. Mm -hmm. It's about developing the arts, developing artists, specifically helping people who are ill or who are unemployed access um, the space and the resources and the money and time to invest in music. Um, and I think that you can see this in, in moments in American music history. For instance, the book, Please Kill Me. It's about 
um, you know, the development of the Stooges and post-industrial Detroit, the, despite the fact that, you know, they're kind of commenting on this economic wasteland or extremely precarious world that people are going into as young people, it gives them the time and the space, right? It's cheap rent is what mm -hmm. made New York music scene. So much of that um, has fostered music across the country. And I think that the socialist take could be to embrace some of that, to fund some of that, to make sure people have that space. So I wanted to see if you guys wanted to weigh in on that. Uh, David, would you like to go for yeah, a little yeah. bit? Yeah, and I mean, then we'll go to Miles. Or we'll go to Jason. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean it's 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 definitely it's definitely true. I mean, um, it's funny. Like the creative process, you have like two sides of the spectrum, right? Where it's like you get the social welfare programs, right, which is better because they're giving people money, and that is able to help them do the work. Or you have the other side, where it's like if rents are really cheap and you can get a bunch of people in a small yeah, exactly. space, then you have the opportunity. Or you you know, can be and live in a warehouse or, or something. Yeah, or like so. whatever kind of strange, you know, and, and incredible and, and, and funny uh, living situation that so many artists found themselves in. It was incredibly important um, to, to, to music. And it's something that I worry about um, a lot. You know, like I'm, I'm from Austin. I'm in Austin. Um, it's a town that has a great music history. You know, history I was talking about earlier with like Willie Nelson had to come to, to Austin really to become Willie Nelson because he couldn't make his music anywhere else. And a big part of that was one, yeah, there's a lot of people here making music together, but it was because it was cheap as hell, right? Yeah. And you could get by and if you could play a song, um, you know, play a show every, you know, a week or, you know, on the weekend or something like that, you could have enough money to get food and whatever. You're not living a nice life, but you can get by. And that, you know, fed into so much of the creativity of, of the city. Now, to be a working musician in Austin, and I just mean like, you know, a regular person who's just playing music, it's just, you're, it's really, really difficult. And yeah. more and more a people. A lot of stuff shut down in Austin, though, too. I mean, there's been, yeah. there, there used to be so many clubs. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but oh, I, no, no. I did want to bring up the fact that you were talking about gentrification yeah. uh, the other night on, uh, on Left Reckoning. I was, I was trying to check some of that out. And uh, I kind of enjoy when you talk about Austin because I think my first time in Austin might have been like 2011, 2012 uh, playing mm. a show. It, it definitely wasn't a good show. Uh, Austin, I hated it at first. Actually, it reminded me of Texas of LA. I, was, I used to say like "f Austin" all. I used to hate it so much. <laughs> my hatred for Austin ran deep for a long time. But as I as I kept going there, um, I would see that the places that I played the the year before, sometimes even months before, had shut down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and even these historic places that have been there for for decades were shutting down because you had a new movement of uh, tech people coming in that didn't yeah. really care about the culture, right? They didn't care, then they don't, and and that's a huge problem. And then you also started to get this difficult part too, where um, because there was like you know people really don't want to pay for for music, um, it 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 started to become really difficult to be able to to book acts like i know some other texas musicians who have told me straight up like i'm just not going to go and play in austin because yeah. most of those places will either pay you like an extremely insulting amount of money or mm -hmm. basically say just do it for free the classic oh you'll get exposure because it's you know yeah. the big city you know it's big on you know it's awesome yeah. i played case, a show in austin and it was for a tech billionaire Jesus Christ. For his birthday. <laughs> it wasn't me per se. I wasn't headlining it. I, I was just backup singing for it. And yeah, it was, I think like the local police department was there doing security for him. You could see the divide. It was very, very clear. Like what 
part of Austin he lived in and what yeah. part of Austin everybody else lived in. And, and yeah, and, and exactly. And, like that's a whole other thing we can get into, like Austin's gentrification and wealth divide. But like the, the you know the point here when it comes to music is like these things are social like goods, right? Like one of the mm -hmm. things that I love so much growing up was I would walk down the street even as a kid and you were just hearing music, right? Like that, my mom did not listen to yeah. music at all, right? So I didn't grow up in a musical household, um, but I was constantly hearing music. So I, you know, I very much had that experience of, you know, being around music all the time. And it's not as much the case today. And that's because one, because there are shifts in like capitalism and, and culture and all that other stuff. But two, it's something that we could very much address if we were providing um, artists, not just musicians too, but artists in general yeah. with the funds or how like, I think it'd be great if the government gave people social programs to help them out. But if we just made sure that people were able to access a basic standard of living in their homes sure. and their communities, well, well, things well, would be way better. <laughs> so, so our neighbors to the north in Canada, we have we have some friends uh, that we met on this last tour we did. The last tour I did was in 2019. Actually, the last show I played, uh, Big D was in. Oh, Austin. it was pre-COVID. It was pre-COVID. Everything pre -COVID got canceled. Show. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everything got canceled for COVID. But the last show I played was in Austin. But anyway, some <laughs> friends of ours in Canada, they own a small venue in, in Toronto. We're coming into town, and they said, Jason, can you hook us up a show? And I was like, I can I can try. But, I, you know, they played more like – it just wasn't – I play like punky metal shit, mm -hmm. and they didn't mm -hmm. play punky shit and it's like all my friends are in punky metal shit bands or i know really mediocre young hip-hop guys i'm like i don't want to put you with mediocre young hip-hop guys <laughs> i want to get you guys a legit show but i can't just call in vogue up and be like hey are y'all playing the cow palace uh -huh. so I, I was like we'll do a show because also where where i lived there was a stage room um i should have sent kale a link to the place i could have showed you so the stage room was actually built to be a club Mm. Mm -hmm. but it's just where you can do practice before a show definitely like i said yeah. a bunch of videos are shot there so i was like we'll throw a show at this in the stage room and we'll do an old school house show style mm -hmm. and i had invited a friend of mine that's a comedian that opens for Chappelle, and it was dope you know live band it was dope and i went to give them money at the end of the night and they were like we're fine we get a stipend from the government to go on tour <laughs> thousands yeah <laughs> to go that's on amazing. tour yeah yeah. And well, Toronto's an expensive to city too. It's yeah. Toronto's not immune from some of these things, but you see how these, you know, basic programs and access completely mm. change stuff for people. Um, Jason, you said that you lived in a, you lived in this, in this kind of rehearsal space. Um, I wanted to ask you more about the, the way that, Musicians often share these things with each other. There's this kind of unspoken. Bundle. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think like, you know, there, despite the kind of competitiveness in the industry, there's also this like really nice comradely favoritism that can happen sometimes too. So did you see this? Did you get, did you oh. let people in? So first of all, to get in the play, I not a lot of people live there. <laughs> the owner has to okay you. And the owner is like an old school stoner that's only done this type of work his entire life. And he's mm. in his late 50s. And he has an oh well fuck it attitude that you have to admire. It's so rock and roll. You have to mm. admire it. 
when Digital Underground told him in the early 90s, you shouldn't do Tupac's album release party because there's going to be real killers there. And he's like, oh, no, fuck it, man. Rock and roll. Have a party. <laughs> and it went off without a hitch. And that's been kind of his, you know, his, his MO. So there was always wild shit going on. Like wild shit going on. Like wild shit. And <laughs> you couldn't complain about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I lived in a in a in a part where I was the only person that lived there, but it and it was next to like his office. So we called it like the hidden side. You can't really see it from the street. Um but one of my neighbors who passed away not too long ago uh liked to do crazy shit and at three o'clock in the morning turn everything up to 11 and yeah play for 20 minutes i can't go knock on his door and be like turn that shit down because i may want to record a, a, a song but because of that sort of weird camaraderie in this odd space what i was able to get was an amount of help that i never would have gotten had i not lived there so one day we my ex and I were in a were in a group for about seven years and we were rehearsing one day and Dwayne Wiggins walked in from Tony 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 and he said first he apologized and then he, and we we're like, Oh no, that's fine. Like we knew who he was. And uh he goes, You guys are really interesting and I think you need a video done. And we're like, That yeah, we don't have any fucking money. And he goes, well, well, I'll I'll call my video guy. We're like, but you're Dwayne Wiggins. Your video guy is not my video guy. Come on. Not dude. anymore. Well, yeah. He takes us out for pizza. He calls up this guy. This white man shows up and he's like, So where are the people at? And he goes, These are the guys. And so he whispers something to the dude. And the dude looks at us. He goes, Well, how much can you afford? We're like, uh, $100. That's all we had. And he shot all day with us with steady cams and lights oh and all kind of crazy shit. You can't get that anywhere else but that place. I got to know mm-hmm. the, my favorite band is one of my favorite bands is Faith No More. Mm-hmm. I got to know Faith No More pretty well. I remember our microphone broke while we were recording uh, an album, and their bass player Billy Gould always said, "If you need anything, ask me. Whatever you need, ask me." So I go knock on the door. They're they're rehearsing to go on a tour to Japan, and I'm knocking on the door, and he's like, "Yeah, what's up?" I was like, "Uh, our microphone broke," and he goes into the booth and he screws it off. He's like. Here you go. We're going to Japan. Just, just keep it and give it back to me. You see me again. Like that, that level of, of, yeah. of support, uh, I, I could only get there. And then also, like I said, getting to know all of your, your heroes and having them support you, do shows with you, give you tips, give you gear. I have mm-hmm. so much gear from these people, uh, yeah, there's tons of yeah. like interpersonal solidarity and, you know, um, assistance and stuff, I think, with musicians. And I want to see it channeled into <laughs> a union. Mm. I want to see, I want to like, you know, uh, help Anita Baker beyond just not streaming her music. But like, <laughs> you know, I pick it for her. I mm. would lay, I would lay down my time for Anita Baker. <laughs> but it's but it is interesting, right? Because as of of course, I, I want to see something more fair. But there's definitely tears of these artists, and it's interesting when you see people trying to come up and all the things that they have to do. Teray and I talk about this all the time when we talk about like why black kids don't play rock music or even play funk mm. music really anymore. And first of all, it's access to instruments. 
Yeah. I was about mm-hmm. to ask you about that. Like, cause you know, I play only acoustic instruments primarily. And I, I was like, man, that's expensive. Every time I think about like jumping into electric guitar, I'm like, okay, this is like $3,000 that I don't have. So I'm just going to, you know, keep playing old school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, in New Orleans, like- New Orleans just destroyed its public school system, like more thoroughly than any other place, but they could not take instruments away from those kids. If you are a kid mm-hmm. in New Orleans, you get a free instrument. You can walk around New Orleans. That's where my husband's family is from. And a lot of them work in the music industry. And there's just little kids out, right? Like playing the trumpet playing the tuba. you It's a city of music. It's infused with it. Part of it is because, you know, well, it, for a while it was relatively cheap, right? For musicians to get spaces there, but they pour a lot into that industry. Mm-hmm. They pour a lot into those venues. It's, it's also in the culture. Get, yeah, exactly. Because like, that's a third rail. You cannot take that <laughs> access away from those kids. We I, need yeah. more of that. Uh, 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 commenter asked us a question about um, a push to revive the federal arts program, which was a new deal program running from 1935 to 1943 to fund visual arts in the United States. I think it should just be expanded. I think we've kind of touched on this a little bit. What do you guys think of that? Jason, would you like to, to oh, weigh in here? Man, that, that, that reminds me again of, of, of Canada with these grants that people mm-hmm. get and the funding that people get to could do their, go do their thing. Uh, that program was also, they were, weren't they doing things like they were getting hired to do certain things. It wasn't just like, mm-hmm. okay, go. Commission go make for. Your, yeah, yeah. Jason, go make weird, arty, loud shit in a, yeah, like it. Yeah, they didn't just give you the refer to a studio. Like me, but, oh, I would definitely love to see something like that. Even in New Orleans, artists get housing. You can get mm-hmm. housing if you qualify. If you yeah, and there's money. artist housing in uh, New York City and some other cities in in the U.S. And we, you know, we don't we don't fund the arts because we don't really respect music. Like, how many school programs have cut their or schools have cut their music? When you watch an old documentary about like a funk band, and I definitely got to meet a lot of the old funk bands, because a lot of that shit happened in the Bay Area. Those guys all met in like junior high and high school playing in a band. Mm. Yeah. In a school band. I, 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 no, I think that's like such a, a good point. It's like, one, like, obviously, most people listening to this know that us all, you know, as socialists are going to say we want the government to be supporting artists, right? And putting that money into, into schools. Um, you know, and, and things of that nature. Um, but it's also something that's worth noting. It's like socialism is about community and, and, and being social. And what we've seen with music, I don't have some like big theory about it, but it's just something that I think about a lot um, is how music has become very, very individual. Like as an experience, you listen alone, you you might go to a concert, but you have your group of people who like your type of music. Mm -hmm. And, um, And instead of it being something that was, you know, a community experience, right? Or like a regional experience. It's funny when you read, and by the way, too, this isn't some kind of thing It's like, you know, as much as I like it, like if you live in the South, you have to only listen to country music, right? No, literally mm-hmm. like some of the great folks out there. I mean, um, I think about something like a jukebox, right? You come into yeah. a public space, right? To hear music and somebody's going to select it and they might be playing jazz or class or whatever, right? All different kinds of music, but it was something that was shared with a lot of different folks, which allowed people to in, in like enjoy music as a community experience rather than just like, this is my identity. I dress this way. So I'm only yeah. going to listen to this kind of thing. Right. And I, I see this like 
with like our kind of like hyper individualistic culture in the U.S. in particular, um, you know, the, the, it's something that's very harmful to like creativity and, and to community that we really have segmented things um, in, in that way. Yeah, it's the logic of commodities, right? Like you have a bracketed product, you have a bracketed genre, you have a bracketed kind of self. The thing that's incredible about music, I'll never forget being in um, junior high school, high school, and I was in choir mm -hmm. and I tried out for a state choir. And, you know, Maine is so boring, you guys, <laughs> where I grew up. <laughs> but I loved my music teacher. I will never mm -hmm. forget him to this day. I still go and visit him. I love him. It, it Those people affect you so much. Those experiences do. And I'll never forget being part of this like 150 person choir. And you can feel the sound. Mm -hmm. And it's the same when you play in a funk band. I played in a funk band for a long time. When you're literally, your body is vibrating your pulse is part of the instruments around you. You're sharing the emotions of other people. These things are part of the, the kind of socialist ideology, the things mm -hmm. that underpin social democratic impulses, the ability to create collectively, the ability to have mm -hmm. force collectively. It's why the workers' choruses were so important. It's why, you know, you strike fear into the slave owner and the um, exploitative boss alike by marching together and singing the same mm -hmm. song. It's mm -hmm. what protest is, you know? Mm -hmm. I think we've, we're missing a lot of that. And it's sad to me, while it's understandable to see these big celebrities, pursuing these kind of individual remedies, um, you know, more or less successfully. It's sad that I think music, like as an act itself, it's almost onomatopoetic about the collective, right? And mm -hmm. you, can't, um, you can't be a musician without a person to feel or hear you. You can't mm -hmm. be an artist without that. Like these things are really, really important to reclaim. And that, and that's kind of I think what you guys were talking about with the changes in technology, right? Like I can record a record by myself, mm -hmm. uh, which, which I did. And <laughs> <laughs> lockdown happened, and fucking, mm -hmm. I, I was I was telling I don't remember who I was telling I was like the whole reason the podcast happened was because I had an idea on the tour in 2019 that I had had before that to do something while we weren't touring, and I got laughed at by my band. They're like, that's dumb. Who the hell wants to hear a musician talk about anything <laughs> other than like drug stories? That's kind of a, yeah. So I was like, no, 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 we're going to do this thing. And it's going to be like, they're like, yeah, what, you, just, you can do that. Mm -hmm. And here I am. Uh, do you think, do you guys think music is radicalizing? Can it, it can be? be? Is it, it good be. for it to be? Look, Dead Kennedys, even some of the early metal shit radicalized me. I would have never known who Pol Pot was if it wasn't for Jello Biafra. <laughs> right? <laughs> I would have never yeah. known a lot of shit if it wasn't for, for Public Enemy. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's a definitely a rat for me. It, it radicalized me and it radicalized a lot of people. Uh, Joshua Con Russell, who, who I think has, has been on Jackman before, and, and I know David, you know him. He actually lives around here. Uh, we talk about how punk and hardcore definitely radicalized us mm. and, and made us turn that hard 
that hard left. Um, can it do it now? The, the thing about music now is it's just so freaking siloed. Mm-hmm. Before you had MTV, yeah. whether you liked MTV or not, that's that's how you got your music or the mm-hmm. radio. Or you got maybe, exposed. Yeah. yeah. Now it's like, if I want to listen to polk, polka, funk, <laughs> rap, country, well, there's a guy that'll do it and I'll have a Spotify station for it. And, and I wanted to mention too, and I want to get to the radical question as well, but just like on that, you know, it is interesting that we do have these catalogs, um, you know, of access to so much different kind of music. And even if you do like, you know, let's say on Spotify, like your Discover Weekly, or you go down to any of these, mm-hmm. these holes, it's all curated and they mm-hmm. bring people to listen to the same kinds of music. I'm sure everybody has had that experience where you're like, man, I heard this awesome like jazz, you know, like African jazz song that's like so cool and like unique. And then you hear your friends playing it because they got this exact same suggestion. The algorithm. The algorithm. Well, oh, they got yeah. in trouble for some payola too for some of those uh, curated playlists on Spotify. So it goes back mm-hmm. to how do I get access like how how does your album like I'm not joking I recorded this record and I thought we were going to tour on it mm. and we're not going to tour on it because the world still isn't opened up and so a good friend of mine who does the artwork for my show and artwork on a, a lot of other bigger records goes I'm going to do the artwork for you for free and I want you to release this record mm. I was like I don't know how to release a record and you know, it's to me it's like a fart in the wind. Like who's who's really gonna care? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out like mm-hmm. in May or whatever. But it's like, yeah, I, I can't I, I can't mean, go out and and the connection that people are gonna have to it isn't gonna be the same. Yeah. Then if yeah. you we went to the show and and like experienced it, right? Yeah, it's the same with you know all of these venues that are suffering from COVID, and you know this was happening before for yeah. independently owned venues because of gentrification. Um, and, you know, private real estate kind of buying up and replanning neighborhoods. And consolidation from the very large uh, yeah. uh, production companies, you know, AEG, um, Golden Voice, you might know them as Golden Voice, people that do Coachella, they were buying a lot of the smaller venues because they wanted to control the artists from the 200 seat room to the 1500 seat room to the to the 5000 seater. And then by the time Coachella gets there, then they're not going to ask for $5 million because you were overpaying mm-hmm. Rooms, mm-hmm. um, and also it's a way for you to control independent music Everything. for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, monopolies are are really, <laughs> really great. It's a real thing, <laughs> and as we're you know, and, <laughs> for and, certain and, and, companies, and in a place as storied as the Bay Area, with these music venues that have been around for decades, that have just hosted so many great artists that you see have to shut their doors, be it through the COVID lockdown. Or just like you said, through just basic gentrification, there was a great like divey metal spot we had in San Francisco, which is like the only cool divey metal spot left in San Francisco. And now it's apartments. Yeah. Yeah. And I know David sees that in Austin everywhere. I'm sure walking down the street is not the same as it was 10 years ago. No, man. I mean, I was laughing. Uh, I've been showing family. Um, my girlfriend's family around Austin. I was pointing some places that are like once like now a sweet green, like that upscale. Oh, uh, yeah. oh yeah. I was like, I was like, yeah, that used to be a gun store when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. 
Um, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that you have to have the, the community protect. And like in a social society, that would be something that we would just want to have places to listen to music in your community. Um, I think like music can definitely radicalize folks. It can introduce you to new ideas. I mean, it, it has a radical potential because it can really open you up. Um, not just like to other concepts, but like to other people. We have, you know, we all love mm -hmm. music here, um, both as like a listener to be in a room with people. And sometimes like, you know, you'll go to a, a, a place and you'll see everybody. And it's like, man, everyone does not seem like we come from the same place, same walks of life. But then the music starts and everybody's feeling it. That's really incredible. I will say one of the most transcendent human moments, you know, that I've ever had is just jamming with a large group of people. And you're just like, it's, it's something you feel like is complete chaos. But then, oh, man, we're all able to speak this kind of language. It's like not even, you know, it's not words or anything like that. It's just like a pure, it's just something deep in our soul that we understand. Yeah. Sounds mean something important to all of us. Like those kind of like human experiences with our kind of politics, I think are quite radical. I like uh, music that can be political. Uh, don't get me wrong. Like I, I talk about, you know, I talk about some of my favorite lyrics from, you know, old outlaw country records. I don't like it when bands are like too, like we're only doing, I think we talked about this, Jason. Like rage. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't, again, I'm not even saying anything about like rage or any band. Like this is not a general rule, but it's like some people, they do music, especially like socialists. And they're like, we're just going to like tell you the slogans of the things that you already believe. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah. no, you got to make, you got to make the music, man. No, it's like, you can do that. But like, if you bring me in with the music, then that's a, that's a good thing. Just you like know, extremely people send me country yeah. artists all the time <laughs> who are just like, we're progressive and we're going to yeah. like, just sing a song about you know progressive values it's like man i don't think this music is very good like i it's agree like, with man. you yeah yeah, yeah like that country music right and i don't find it to be very interesting just because it's country and you're talking about there's some there's some, <laughs> i won't name any there's some people that definitely rub me the wrong way because i i bought into some of their slogans and then actually getting to know them it was just they found a market yeah yeah and it yeah. kind of blew me away that I was like, that's the mark. Well, I mean, you're getting paid. Like I'm here yeah. at these shows and there's motherfuckers here. But uh Yeah, you know, I think the kind of political thrust, I also I really hate the like overly didactic. Yeah. It's it it, it just comes off as a little bit stale and sometimes heartless, even though it's like very fervent and mm. maybe potentially naive, but in any case, other people love the the didactic stuff. I think the radical potential of music is what you were describing, David, and what you were describing, Jason, like the ability, I mean, this sounds corny, but it's the ability to connect people. Yeah. It's the ability to, like, you think of a city like New Orleans where people were absolutely gutted. It's very, very difficult to access public services there. They have a, a homelessness issue. The housing stock is unsafe for a lot of people there's extreme precarity but they will not let you take those instruments out of those kids hands that's not that shouldn't be the ceiling but it's a great floor to have to say all human beings have the right to creative expression and all human beings have the right to investment in that and resources for that that i think is is the the real radical lesson that we can take with music and and so I worked in the in the Gulf of Mexico for a little bit and uh off the coast of Louisiana. And what blew me away was the fact that music was so entrenched in the culture. So being around young kids that are playing like washboards and shit like that, and they care about um Cajun music. 
Mm-hmm. Le- learning cool. to play them for 40 years. To it before. Say again? It's cool. Cajun music is cool as hell. Uh, it is. I, it well, I stayed, I stayed at a hostel that ended up being a music venue. I didn't know it was a music venue until one day I went to go do my laundry. I was like, what does that sound? <laughs> Something like, about you in your life, oh, you only swim. live in music venues. You're like, <laughs> Ariella, this is a, if the world ever opens up and you want to come to California, I will show you and your family a very interesting life that I've led. David, that invite, of course, is open to you as well. Uh, but, 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 it's there's something about it being baked into the culture there that that mm-hmm. kind of blew me away and made me fall in love, especially with Southern Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so absent here that the amount of work that we're going to have to do to try to get this stuff back into the culture because it is sad that these techno. I've been my office is is the office, so I get to be privy to certain conversations. And when you hear people like, "Look, these." techno festivals is where we're making all this money mm-hmm. then that's the music that people are going to push mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so how do we get instruments in the hands of of young people so they can be the next thing yeah i mean it's gonna it's gonna take on it's honestly just is going to take seriously political movements mm-hmm. and i you know i love so much of what we've been able to do with like the bernie sanders campaign um and, and the social movements of getting ideas like you know if you're working you shouldn't be living in poverty actually you know what everyone deserves health care all these things right these bread and butter issues are great you know but you know as the line goes like we need our roses too right like we also need to um, make a big part of our platform that hey the socialists aren't just um, saying we want to make sure that everybody is like fed and housed and all this stuff that's great but we actually have a very nice vision of society where we're <laughs> able to listen to music and like go out and enjoy our lives like we're not just saying we want to stop everything bad that's happening we're also saying that we want to create a lot of good in the future too um, and I think exactly. that that's the, the connection we have to build Yep. I think uh, Bhaskar always says socialists aren't coming to take your Kenny Loggins records. We're trying to give you more Logginses. Oh, yeah. Logginses for all. (laughs) (laughs) Bread and roses and Logginses for all. Oh, yeah. Um, Kenny Loggins has a song with Michael McDonald. I love Michael McDonald. I I genuinely, genuinely love Michael McDonald. Hell yeah, man. I don't know if you know the young guy, Ariella uh, Thundercat. No. I'm old, so everybody's a young guy to me. (laughs) So you can imagine how I am at Coachella. Like, put put some clothes on, young lady. Your parents will be. What are you wearing? Uh, Kale knows who you're talking about. He just he just slid into the DMs to say that. He knows. Coachella one year with Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald because he has a song with them. Yes, I will listen to that. If you could have seen the look on those kids' faces, I, I want to say that was the year Beyonce was there. Oh man! So there was just oh, it was a lot of people. I'll always, I'll always love Michael McDonald. Um, <laughs> listen to that yeah. song, Michael McDonald, Kenny Loggins, and Thundercat. It is- I absolutely will. I think there's some promising things, right? Even when we're talking about the changes that technology has wrought for the industry, mm-hmm. what capitalism does is this kind of pseudo democratic bait and switch or pseudo meritocratic meritocratic bait and switch, right? So you get these stories of like Justin Bieber or Lil Nas X 
you know, kind of coming up through my, my poor dog is crying in the background. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> it's because he hates Bieber. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but you get these stories, Taylor Swift, even where it's like, they were a YouTube star, right? They learned this craft on their own. They presented themselves to the world and they were so good and everyone embraced them. And like, they're all very talented. So I am not saying that they weren't embraced from their talent. But what it does is the same kind of um, story that you get a lot in the US, the bootstrap story, the I did it on my own story. Rather than saying we could create a system where things are shareable, resources are easily available, people have access, you can just like, I don't know, tap into a stream and see a band you've never seen before, go down the street to a new music venue and, or like, you know, coffee house nights, talent shows, things like that. Um, what it does is it kind of tells you that the commodification of these forms and the increased commercialization and financialization are, are founded on this meritocratic impulse. It's just lifting these people naturally to the top. And that's why I think it's important when you see a person like Taylor Swift be like, people are selling my handwriting. Yeah. Right. And I have no control over who buys it. Well, let me, so let me ask you this. To that myth. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this, Ariella. And I'm not saying this to try to start some sort of fight with you. How do you feel then about Metallica pushing back on Napster in the early years? Because that was their beef with Napster. People are selling our music. Somebody got demos of stuff that we don't, we're not ready to release yet. Yeah. And why are you? Because they're still. I forgot about Mariah's. Yeah. No. In the, I think in, in the in the eyes of a lot of people, you rich mfers. Yep. F yeah. You guys. Because people didn't understand that you know. So you you have a union like the Writers Guild or the Screen Actors Guild. People in those unions are millionaires, right? Mm -hmm. But they down to the per down to the member say, I have good health care for my family because of the union. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not necessarily always about if a person is really wealthy. And l listen, if Taylor Swift, you know, managed this issue by saying, I'm going to start my own record company, my own streaming service, and then do the same things to every single person who uses that, that's a problem. But if you have an extremely wealthy person who has the platform and can join the right fight, that's good. We should well, be she end up getting a deal with with uh, she got a Spotify deal. Yeah, 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 yeah she I mean did. Look, what she said was meant to benefit other artists and so on. But the other thing is, like, it's really not about the individuals themselves, right? It's about their relationship to the power structure, their relationship to capital. So, you know, like Taylor Swift is fine. You know, she has several houses and she's extremely rich and successful. Wow. She's good. But solidarity is about risk sharing. Mm -hmm. Unionization is about risk sharing. It's not yeah. just about building power the risk that these individuals face is actually mitigated by them joining with people way down the rungs. Mm -hmm. And, and it's in their self-interest to do that. And that should be the point, like beyond the kind of flowery language of solidarity, which I'm into, you know, human beings are emotional and social. I think we should like embrace this, but beyond that, it's like you have a self-interest in joining up with these people. You are more powerful your interests will be more protected. If you have a person who spent the last 50 years fighting contract battles, you're going to have a very different strategy than if you're, 
you know, hiring an industry lawyer privately, right? If you are saying, listen, all of us are worried about these streaming residuals, it is going to be a very different fight than one of you being worried about it. And this is why I included Lauren Hill in my, in my segment, because she got trashed. She got trashed for like withdrawing from something that she really felt threatened by and didn't feel she had control over. And it was at the height of her career, you know, she's still so influential. I mean, Lauren Hill. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh no. I was just going to say part of the concerns Mm -hmm. that, that she was raising are similar to, you know, the fight that Metallica was gesturing towards, the fight that now Taylor Swift has taken up. These artists are continually talking about the conditions in which they produce their music and the terms of those things. Mm -hmm. And to sensationalize the fight, you know, we'll sell papers or get clicks, but really like as socialists, we should be thinking about the material foundations of those critiques, I think. It's... It's interesting because, again, you know, we can't stress it enough. A lot of these guys have been very quiet, had terrestrial radio stayed, streaming not taken over, and they would have been getting those large mm-hmm. seven-figure checks, mm-hmm. especially people like like Taylor Swift. Um, yeah. Does it feel like she said all that to position herself to get a certain deal with Spotify? I don't know. I don't know her personally. I actually have a really good friend that used to engineer in Nashville. Uh that did work on a couple of her records and has nothing but good things to say about her, which made me mad when he told That's me that. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, again, as, as a smaller independent artist streaming for me, like the goal for me would be to be on a curated playlist. Yeah, yeah for sure. You know, the goal for me would be to, to I used to have a PR person mm-hmm. that shit costed $750 a month. Mm hmm. To have someone that has a bigger name on their roster say, if you want to write about swans, then listen to this record from this asshole and please give us a review of this asshole. Mm -hmm. Please make it mildly favorable. Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of people get on. And also there's like a a class component to a lot of these people that we see big. I'm a huge fan of Guns N' Roses. Love the first record. Not too fond in the second one where he's dropping the end bombs. Anyway, <laughs> first didn't know that Slash's mom was in and his dad were in Hollywood and the music industry. Mm-hmm. He knew. David I mean, Gass- Blue Ivy won a Grammy. It's like yeah, it's true. Yeah. The, the nepotism is unbelievable. <laughs> but that goes into your thing about the story of people making it because when you hear yeah. about Guns N' Roses, you could Google Guns N' Roses right now and there's going to be some story about them living on Sunset Strip, mm-hmm. living off strippers, drugs, mm-hmm. booze, and the like. Yeah, You're not yeah. going to hear the story of Slash saying, I had a pretty idyllic life. Grew up in, in L.A. My mom was in Hollywood. My dad made album covers. And when I had a band, I invited David Geffen over to check out my demo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. And I went to high school with, you know, the most influential people's kids and so on and so forth. There's a lot of Kravitz? that. There's a lot of that. But didn't he go to school with Lenny Kravitz? Like real real talk. Yeah, yeah. That's a light skinned power couple right there. <laughs> <laughs> Those are two of the most badass guitar player, rock and roll MFers around. And so it, it it's what I'm saying is it's really hard when you really start to look at people's stories, like who is really coming up? That's why when David's talking about country music, especially old country music, because new country music 
<laughs> that shit sounds like badass hip hop. <laughs> oh, dude, that stuff's a whole thing, by the way. The oh. snap track. It's oh. like one of the worst. I don't know, you know, it's just like first of all, you know, like it's not a music that traditionally has like a beat like that. And it's really bad. It's like you know, you're right. It's like 90, it's like bad 90s, like RB hip hop, but sung by like a super like souped up bro from Georgia. Yeah. It's doesn't like black me. people but loves yeah. hip hop. Yeah. It's like written by a computer that was just fed like a certain demographics Twitter streams where it's like booze guns. <laughs> like, just it doesn't America. Seem like- oh man, there was like a really bad movement in like the mid two thousands, which was to be fair, it was a very bad time. Just I think in culture in general in this country. Uh-huh. Um, but they had this thing called like hiccup. Um, yeah, and yeah. on CMT all the time, and it was very goofy. But honestly, like that stuff at least has more soul than the snap track <laughs> stuff because at least it's just like some weird guy from like Virginia, and he's just like, I'm gonna, I like rap, but I also am a hick, so I'm gonna rap about you know, driving my truck around or whatever. Like, at least that's a little authentic versus these guys who feel like they're all like you know, they're all clones or something, they're created in the lab. Yeah, um, I feel like it's just a computer that's like, your name is like Jetty, <laughs> Jetty yeah, exactly. McGuffin, and you're gonna be. <laughs> Singing about how you like tractors. This woman left. You saw this hot woman at a bar. It's like they have to hit. Every- and they're crying too. They're always it's crying. Junk it's food, really though. It's junk food music. It's junk food. But music like, just need too, you. Is it's junk food. You're missing out on like all, all these great folks. Um, you know, just for people like there's a great YouTube channel called like gems on VHS. And I don't know too much about the organization, but they basically do like very professional quality videos for like upcoming young country and folk artists. And it's legit real deal, good music, but it's something you would never find through Spotify or for anything like that. Right. And like, you know, that's another thing about technologies that does allow like communities uh, to exist, but just like anything, new technology in in capitalism, it just gets cannibalized and, you know, and that's what the radio was before. Yeah. You know, right. the radio is crazy too. Sorry not to go on, but like, you know, the radio, you know, we're talking about like, oh, technology, like, you know, the radio had the same issue where the DJs had insane mm-hmm. amounts of power, right? They could, they they would, and I know in like country music, especially like in the 50s and stuff, they would just straight up be like, I don't like this son of a bitch. Like, I'm never going to play him on my station again, just because, you know, he heard something about him at a party. Right? Yeah, he's a a more likely than anything. Um yeah. You know, so these yeah. issues have always existed. It's just like, and that's why I, I've been trying to make sure it's like, let's not fall into the trap of, you know, blaming tools and make, you know, the point that we're talking about systems that use these tools in a certain way. And these tools get developed in a certain way to promote this one system. Oh, man. Like I said, I sat in my in my room during uh, COVID lockdown uh, and recorded uh, an entire record and played a bunch of instruments <laughs> at all hours of the night. And definitely used computerized drums on a lot of that shit. Okay. Uh, so I'm not going to sit here and fucking bag it. Um, oh, yeah. Fuck, you were saying about country that I wanted to chime in on. You have a country it. song to debut right now. I do not have a country <laughs> song because I will not destroy that genre like that. And well, I think the stage destroyed oh, Booze, Guns, and Bars. Hell yeah. Man, I hate like Austin. Austin, dude, look, David, I know you're a Texan through and through, and you like UT. And for those of you that don't know, um, David and I, I'll say this, David, we okay. are sports fans. Yes, we are. And college Sorry football, around, everybody, please you know, forgive us. We, we talk shit to each other on Twitter. And the fact that we can have these shit talk conversations 
on open Twitter and no one comment on it is rather funny. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm telling you, like, not to derail, but uh, Jason and I started to talk because I tweeted one day. It's like every time I tweet, like, just anything remotely about football, I'll lose like 20 followers on Twitter <laughs> and because there's so many lefties who just like are so against like sports, like in general, beyond just like not liking them, like getting mad at people for enjoying yeah. them. So we, we, we definitely go back and forth. Look, my first time in Austin, I remember setting up and I had my shit and we set up our shit and I turned my amp on and said, turn it on. Everybody left. I was like, man, fuck this town. And then, like the next time I went there, I wasn't cool enough. And I was like, double fuck this town. And then, <laughs> and then I went there a third time because I'm a glutton for punishment. And I started to meet some good people and they showed me that, hey, everything here doesn't suck and we started making it a a, a, def, a definite tour stop city in texas I but that. i will say the shows were always better in uh san antonio san antonio is a cool town san antonio is a definitely a cool town um, it's gonna start some weird like san antonio versus austin <laughs> i mean <laughs> austin, in the comments oh they i, I would love somebody that they can do what they're gonna do it's it's um, it's Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Carry on. No. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I actually need to end the show. It's been ah! super fun talking to you, but I have to put my kids to bed. <laughs> oh, it's late where you are, huh? It's late where I am. Yeah. Oh. I'm not on I'm not on the Pacific Standard Time schedule. Okay. That means I have to go pick up mine. I have a two-year-old. Oh, you do? I have a three-year-old. I, They're... Yeah. They're yeah, very don't cute. Make me feel left out. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it because you need to have a kid, David. I look at me. I'm way too old to be changing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped changing diapers in the 90s, and then I decided, you know, and then you just jumped back in. Do it again. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, I wanted to thank both of you. I feel like I could keep talking about this forever. Mm. Um. David, thank you so much for guest hosting. Jason, thank you for a riveting conversation. I hope it continues. Everybody check out their respective podcasts. And Jason's, when's your, when you're, you're going to drop your album in May? Uh, your sure. COVID album? Sure. I don't, I don't, I don't know, man. I was, I was sitting there. I was like, should I drop it in May when Ben Burgess drops his book and I could like piggyback on him? <laughs> Like, yeah, like Ben Burgess, you really won't like for. this. <laughs> you can open for every book event he does <laughs> without telling him. <laughs> I look forward to the world opening back up so I can like see people like you guys in, in real life and for sure. Yeah, we'll do your venues that Jason has lived in tour of America. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, thanks again so much. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. If you did like and subscribe at Paul on Twitter, because I don't even know if we have a Twitter, do other things for us on social media, <laughs> like Facebook. I don't know. Follow us on Facebook. <laughs> I'm hopeless, you guys. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Kale's You're gonna, unplugged. That means it's Kale's going to text me after the show <laughs> and be like, no, why not. why um yeah thank you both again and uh we'll have you back on soon nice to meet you oh i want to get you on my show one of these saturdays 
Yeah, let's check in about it. Nobody can tell. This is the first time I've announced that you guys are here for our Jacobin show first. I'm extremely pregnant right now. <laughs> you can't wow. see. That's why I have to write out everything I say because <laughs> pregnancy <laughs> brain is real. That's also why I look tired, people in the comments. Um, but I'd love to be on your show uh, pending, you know, all the pregnancy symptoms I have. I would it's really enjoy that. Mine runs in all the time and kicks the door Perfect. in and Yes. Very yeah. Very as cool. long as you can cope with me having no breath support and potentially forgetting things. Oh, I think we'll is it a good. big child? Are they other, the other is, ones? Yeah. The other ones. Yep. The big children. Yeah. yeah. You have multiple children. I do. Yeah. I have two kids. So oh. I knew what I was in for. I'm not too worried oh, about you're it. Going for the, you're going for the trifecta. My mom's side of the family is extremely tall. I didn't mm. get the tall side, but my oh. mom's side is like six. My mom's six feet tall and my siblings are very tall. I'm small. I got the small side. The Richmond, the Richmond, Virginia jeans, which are all like around five five at the tallest. So are your children, are they? Are they my little? children got the tall Swedish. So uh, you're, Wow. Yeah. Grown my mom would always be like, I never was uncomfortable and I meditated through my labors. And I was like, you're about a foot bigger than me. Maybe that's why. Yeah. yeah. So now all of the people in the comments know my personal, my secret. I've been hiding it from the oh, head like down. Oh, when Claire Huxtable was pregnant and it was just groceries. Yeah, exactly. I'm actually holding a huge purse. Like filled with flowers and like a watermelon. Well, congratulations on yeah. on your on your pregnancy, and I hope everything goes well, and your feet don't swell, and you're not Thank uncomfortable you. sleeping at night. And the good thing is, I get a, like a lot of feedback at this moment from this baby kicking at certain times while you guys are oh. talking. Oh, word! There's the certain was stuff like, like the Nola to... stuff. Loved. It. Oh, he was good. Hey, well, that's good. good over there. Loved the drug den comment. Loved the Chris Christopherson <laughs> stuff. I love it. <laughs> I have to tell David Grissom this Chris Christopherson story off camera then. Okay, well, we'll let you go then. Um, but thank you again, both of you, for being on the show, and we'll have you back on soon. And to the audience, good night. <laughs>